Fellow students, if you turn to Revelation 17, uh, Richard, I appreciate be still my soul. When you get done with this chapter, your soul will need to be still. Uh, we've been through going through Revelation, as you recall, the first couple of chapters. Chapter 1 exalts the glorified risen Christ. Chapter 2 and 3 gives us the churches, the seven churches, seven letters to seven individual churches by Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church. Chapters 4 and 5, the worship of heaven. We get a heavenly perspective. Chapters 6 through 18, where we've been the last several months, talk about the great tribulation. And last week, we finished probably one of the toughest chapters in the book of Revelation, Revelation 16, the seven bowl judgments. So we looked at the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and last week, the seven bowl judgments. And we've been looking at those judgments in themselves what they mean, their purpose, their outcome. Today, we're going to take a look at the final world system that has been receiving God's judgments. And the question is, what on earth is happening on earth to deserve this kind of intervention from Almighty God? Chapter 17 and 18 are going to answer that question. Remember that 17 and 18 are not chronological. They don't follow the bold judgments in chapter 16. They really go back and look at the entire seven-year period of Revelation and give us the state of the world throughout that period of time that includes God's rationale and reason behind the judgments. Now, chapter 17, where we're going to spend today, really is a cast of characters. And this cast of characters includes a woman, a beast, seven hills, and ten horns. And there, the woman, of course, being the central character in this chapter, in order to understand the meaning of Revelation, it's imperative that we correctly identify these characters. It's important to understand in Revelation, women show up frequently as symbols of religion in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2.20 describes Jezebel and Thyatira as a false religion. So Jezebel, the woman, promotes adultery and idol worship in Revelation 2.20. Revelation 12 depicts a woman clothed with the sun. This, of course, is the nation of Israel representing the religion of Judaism. And she is depicted in the Old Testament often as the wife of Jehovah. Revelation 19 and 21 talk about the redeemed, the people of God as the virgin bride of Christ. So we have Jezebel... We have Israel, and we have the church, the redeemed as the bride of Christ. Chapter 17 also describes a woman. This woman is a scarlet woman. This is not the wife of Christ, not the bride of Christ. This false religion is described as, described as a prostitute. Paige Patterson, in his commentary, notes 10 observations that will help us identify this particular woman. You're going to see these as we go through. I'll just line them out right now so you get a handle on it. Number one, she's a prostitute. Number two, she sits on many waters. <clears throat> Number three, the kings of the earth are her paramours. Number four, she rides on a seven-headed, ten-horned scarlet beast. She carries a golden cup filled with abominations. She has the title mystery. She bears an identity with Babylon. She is fabulously wealthy and dressed with purple and scarlet. She is drunk with the blood of the saints. And she is identified with a great city that rules over all the kings of the earth. If you want to know her name, turn to verse 5. Revelation 17, verse 5. There is a name. It's probably written all in caps in your Bible. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, it's imperative to understand that Babylon here represents both a literal, physical city, and Babylon also represents the final worldwide system of satanic rule. So Babylon represents a city and a system in the same way that Wall Street is both a location and a system. Madison Avenue is both a location and a system as well. So Satan's final world empires, we're going to find out in the next couple of weeks, has at least two pieces, a political side and a religious side. Chapter 18, where Lord willing will be next week, describes the political, the economic, the commercial aspect of Satan's empire, and that is described as a monster in chapters 13 and chapter 18. The religious aspect of this final world empire headed by the Antichrist is described in this chapter 17, and she is described as a whore and a mother. Now, despite what you see in our current era, the world is becoming increasingly religious as time progresses. Satan is no fool. He's an ultimate fool, but he's very intelligent. He understands that the only thing that can ultimately unite the world 
is religion. Politics, culture, history, race, military, the United Nations, none of them have the capacity to unite the world. Only religion, the supernatural, has the capacity to transcend human cultural differences and unite the world. Even today, we have something that you are all aware of, the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement has been promoting one world religion for decades as the solution to the political and social fragmentation that appears in our world. And if you read the headlines, you don't have to look very far to realize that things are beginning to fragment. Actually, they've been fragmenting for decades, but we're seeing it a lot more, whether it's social fragmentation, gender fragmentation, income inequality, uh, religious fragmentation, cultural. You don't have to read very far to see that there's issues at that point in time. Imagine during the tribulation, as God's judgments intensify, people are going to be looking for, seeking for desperately somebody to deliver them from these divine disasters. It's going to be clear during this period of time that human solutions to the problems on planet Earth, including the judgments of God, are completely inadequate. The Red Cross, the military, science, medicine, national government will be completely unable to provide relief from the judgments of Almighty God during this seven-year period at that point. So Satan, understanding he has to unite the world, is going to engineer and co-opt a one-world religion that God calls Babylon. So when you see that title, keep that in mind. This is a false religion. This false religion will worship a false god. The name of the false god is Antichrist. Chapter 13 and 3 tells us that the entire world will worship this world leader as their savior. Now, in order to understand the future Babylon religion that's coming, it's going to be real helpful to understand the past Babylon religion. Here's the key idea for our lesson today. Idolatry <clears throat> begins with I and ends with try. It's human-centered. It's me-centered. It's I-centered. It's work-centered. It's effort-centered. It's achievement-centered, right? Pastor Roger talked about that this morning for those of you who were there at 8 o'clock. If you haven't been at 8 o'clock, make sure you go to 11 o'clock service. True worship begins and ends with God alone. And therein lies the difference that we're going to see between Babylon, the city of man, and Jerusalem, the city of God. Now, if we want to get a historical perspective on Babylon, we need to go back to chapter 10 of Genesis, right after the flood of Noah. Genesis 10 records the history of a man called Nimrod. Nimrod, who is a great-grandson of Noah. So he was probably born a couple decades after the flood, maybe four or five decades after the flood. The name Nimrod probably means rebel. I wouldn't recommend you call your child that, even though they may behave like that, right, fairly frequently. Genesis says that Nimrod was a, quote, mighty hunter, and then comes a phrase you should underline in Genesis 10. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, before the Lord. Before the Lord means that he was committed to be in first place. He was committed to get before God. He was committed to be in place of God. Who do we know in history engineered the first I will be like God agenda? Lucifer, correct? You all know that. Uh, Isaiah 14, uh, Ezekiel 28. He wanted to be in first place. He wanted to be in the place of God. So Nimrod is Lucifer's first protege. He's the founder of the city of Babel, later called Babylon. He also built the city of Nineveh. That's pretty good, right? You have a king here, an emperor over that period of time that built two of the world's cities. Actually, Nimrod was Satan's first world leader. The Antichrist will be his last world leader. Now, after the flood, as you recall, in Genesis 11, everyone spoke the same language, right? I don't think it was English. I actually don't know. I've often wondered what the, what the language in heaven would be. Will it be Hebrew? You know, hard to know. But at any rate, they all spoke the same language. They came from the same family. It makes sense. Now, God had commanded Noah and his three sons after the flood to do what? Spread out, multiply, fill the earth. I want the earth populated. So the command was to disperse. But as you recall from Genesis 11, man rebelled against God and decided to stay together in the plain of Shinar, which is where Babylon is, and build a what? A tower that would reach to heaven. 
their goal, which they stated, was to make a name for themselves, not to make a name for God. They wanted to exalt themselves. They wanted to make themselves the center, not God the center. These towers were called ziggurats, Z-I-G-G-U-A-R-A-T-S. And at the very top of that tower, they installed the zodiac, the sign of the zodiac. Their priests would then climb to the top of that tower and use the zodiac to chart the course of the stars and then attempt to predict the future. So it was the first false world religion that was directly rebellious against God's command to multiply, fill the earth, populate the earth. They wanted to stay in one spot and exalt themselves. So God had a solution for that. He changed their language. So when you're building a tower, you can't speak to one another about what task needs to be done next. So the amount of frustration caused them to leave and disperse, which is exactly what God wanted them to do. So Babel in the original Greek, probably, or the original Hebrew, probably meant gate of God. They thought they were actually going to be able to see what God was up to. Today, when somebody says Babel, we think confusion, yes? We think non-understandable. We think um, non-comprehensible, right? But when the people at Babel left and dispersed, what did they take with them? They took their false religion with them. They took their I am center religion. They took I am going to worship self religion, which came from Lucifer. In that way, Babylon became the mother of all these false religions, and we're going to talk about that. Now, chapter 17 really neatly divides itself into two parts. The first eight verses, we of course, seven verses, we have John's vision. And verses 8 to 18, John gets an interpretation of the vision from the angel. Let's dive into verse 1. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So John is now being shown Satan's final world empire. Remember, the kingdom the Antichrist rules over is physical, military, economic, political, but it's also a spiritual and religious empire. Chapter 18 talks about the economic material side. Chapter 17 talks about the spiritual and religious side. That's what we're going to do today at that point in time. Antichrist, as you recall, is the political leader of this empire. The false prophet, as we discussed a few weeks ago, is the religious leader of this particular empire. Chapter 17 and 18 describe Babylon from God's point of view so you can understand the character of this satanic world system and why God is going to destroy it. God has an opinion about this world system, and he calls it the great harlot. Now, for those in America, we harlot doesn't mean anything. Harlot in the vernacular means whore. That is pejorative, and that is extraordinarily powerful, what I call a blood word. When people start using words like that, generally they're angry or they're intoxicated or something. You just don't use that language. This is God's opinion, and his opinion is truth, of course, of this particular world system. Now, to prostitute something is to take that which has a proper use and turn it to an improper use. A prostitute turns sex from a proper use into something improper. The word Greek here is porneia, P-O-R-N-E-I-A, and it literally means any immoral sexual behavior, including adultery, fornication, pornography, etc. Those of you who, I mean, this is pretty obvious, adultery is immoral sexual behavior between people that are married. Fornication is immoral sexual behavior between people who are unmarried. Understand this. In Scripture, when God uses the word harlotry, prostitution, etc., spiritually speaking, it symbolizes idolatry. Harlotry symbolizes idolatry. Here's the principle. Loving anything more than Jesus is committing spiritual adultery against your first love. We found out in Revelation 2 that the number one thing God had against the number one church in Ephesus is that they had left their first love. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church and the Lord of your heart. To put it bluntly, and I'm going to be very blunt with you today, to leave your first love means you're having spiritual sex with a false god. That's an idol. That's called idolatry. Idolatry is cheating on Jesus, who is our first love. Worship is the most intimate thing that human beings can do. Sex and marriage in the physical realm are a picture of worship in the spiritual realm. 
God will use this physical framework to help us understand the intimacy of spiritual worship. Idol worship is joining yourself to a false god. So idolatry is always spiritual prostitution. Idolatry is taking our worship, which God has designed for Him alone, and giving it improperly to false gods. God created us for an exclusive relationship with who? Him alone. Just like a marriage covenant between a husband and wife. The first commandment is, you shall have a few gods before me, and I'm okay with that. Is that what it says? How many, how many are allowed? Zero. You shall have no other gods before me, not even a small one. Not even your favorite little sin. No other gods before me. God, your relationship with God is exclusive. He demands and deserves all your heart because he is God. And he's demonstrated his love for you because he gave you all his heart. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave you what? His only begotten Son. You don't have to doubt the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He came and laid down his life. This final world empire of the Antichrist and Satan is a whore. She refuses to worship the true God. She loves and serves many false gods and has forsaken the only true God. It says, Scripture says, God says she is the great whore in the sense that she, Babylon, played a dominant role in leading the nations of the world into spiritual adultery. This Babylon sits on many waters. It's both a world religious system and it's also a literal city. Most cities are built on water. Water is, of course, the source of life. Babylon was built on the Euphrates River. The, the river came through and actually divided into many streams. There were many islands there and there were, of course, lots of canals. So it covered about 2,500 acres. The largest city in the world at the time was Babylon. It was the great city. However, waters in Scripture often symbolizes ungodly nations. Nations that do not know God are often symbolized as waters. In verse 15, the angel gives us an interpretation of what waters means. The angel says to John, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So this ecumenical apostate false religion is going to rule over all the peoples of the world, and the entire world is going to worship the Antichrist. Now, if you want to know where this is located, go to the very last verse of this chapter, verse 18, and it says, the headquarters of this false religion will be the great city. There's a lot of controversy over this. By the way, any of you who have studied Revelation understand there's loads and loads and loads of different opinions about a variety of things. I've read commentaries that very much take the case and demonstrate that the revived and restored city of Babylon is the great city. I've read an equal number of commentators that believe that it's Rome at that point in time. So we're not going to split hairs there. It probably has combinations of both, which I'll get into in a little bit. But we already know that Saddam Hussein has built parts of Babylon and it seems clear that during the tribulation it will be the headquarters of the Antichrist Empire. Chapter 18 records the destruction of Babylon in great detail. So we're persuaded that it had to be rebuilt to a much greater degree than it is now in order for it to be destroyed. This false religion has political connections. Verse 2, this great harlot, this great prostitute, religious prostitute that God is so angry with says that she will commit fornication with the kings of the earth. They'll commit acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So this idol-worshipping religion cuts deals with political leaders. This is the unholy marriage of what? Church and state. Political power and religious power. The marriage of politics and religion often produces power that is literally intoxicating. You all know history well enough to understand that history is replete with kings and governors and princes and tribal chiefs that are married to the power of the priesthood and the witch doctors, etc., etc., to keep each other in power. So many, many times political power and religious power become allies. By the way, God's not a big fan of that because it always corrupts true religion. Now the outcome is that everyone on earth is made drunk with the wine of immorality. Idolatry is intoxicating in the sense that sin makes you senseless. Did you get that? 
We've said it a little straighter here a couple months ago. We said sin makes you stupid. That may be more understandable. Sin doesn't make any sense. It makes you senseless. Why would you rebel against Almighty God who loves you and lay down his life for you? It makes no sense at all. Anyone who rejects Jesus, therefore, is committing spiritual adultery and submitting themselves to the deception of Satan and demons. We found that out last week. They're obviously quite persuasive. They persuaded all the multitudes of the earth, nation, states to come to Armageddon for the battle, which we're going to discuss in chapter 19. So John is now, after these first two verses, he's carried away by the Holy Spirit to a vision in the wilderness, verse 3. And he, meaning the Holy Spirit, carried me, John, away in the Spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman on this beast is called Babylon. We found that out in verse 1. Both the literal city and the Babylon, the world religious system, is what he's really looking at here. This world religious system has rejected Jesus Christ and worships the Antichrist. And this false world religious system is sitting on top of a scarlet beast in this vision. The beast, we've already discussed in Revelation 13, is scarlet because it's related to what? The fiery red dragon we also looked at in Revelation 13. The fiery red dragon is Satan, right? Who is Satan himself? And we understand that the Antichrist is Satan's protege. So obviously they both would be colored red. This beast is the one that we saw rising out of the sea in chapter 13. This woman is sitting on the beast. We're going to find out a little bit later that she is not ruling over the beast. She is supported by the beast. So the beast is full of blasphemous names, which means cursing. We found out in Revelation 13 that the Antichrist demands to be worshipped as God and blasphemes God routinely. All the time, as does his father, Satan. So this beast, obviously, the Antichrist, is full of blasphemous names. Verse 4. And the woman, false religious system, systems, was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of immorality. Now, purple and scarlet were not colors of the common person. I see some scarlet in here. I'm looking for purple. I see some purple. Okay, we got some purple. Back in the day, those dyes were very, very hard to come by. So if you wore purple or you wore scarlet, especially purple, that was a symbol of what? Royalty. Royalty. You obviously had power and privilege and the ability to command that kind of thing. So this woman is clothed in royalty. This prostitute, this false religion is very, very wealthy. Who says religion doesn't pay? In this case, this false religion pays extremely well. It says she's adorned in gold, precious stones, and pearls. She does business with the world. We're going to find that out next week. She flaunts the wealth that results from doing business with the world. I'm not going to get too far afield here, <clears throat> but you don't have to look very far around our world to understand that in some places, religion pays very, very well. Very, very well. It says that she's carrying a golden cup. Another sign of wealth, privilege, power. But the inside of the cup is what? Full of abominations. Beautiful on the outside, morally filthy on the inside. This false religion, operated by Satan, tempts mankind in the same way Satan tried to tempt Jesus in Matthew 4. The lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. First John, right? You know that. By the way, Satan is not a creative character. He's only got three temptations. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Do they work pretty well? Mm -hmm. Without the Holy Spirit, every single one of us routinely, reliably, will fall into his traps at that point. And this false religion is obviously very, very, very effective. Verse 5. We'll go over the name. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery. Now, look at your Bible. Some of your translations will have mystery capitalized as part of her name. Her name is Mystery Babylon. And there is, this is also controversial. I've read a number of commentators who believe, and with some legitimacy, that there's actually a comma after mystery and a comma before mystery. So she's a mystery, but mystery's not part of her name. 
I realize we're splitting hairs, but there's a lot of commentators that draw very interesting conclusions from this. We're going to assume at this point in time, just to put it on the table, a mystery comma, here's the name, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, in Rome, during this period of time, prostitutes literally wore their name on their forehead for everyone to see. That would indicate not much shame, right? Not much uh, sense of indecency. This religious, false religious system has no shame. Obviously, Satan doesn't. He has no shame. This religion is a mystery. The name of it is, and let me explain. A mystery in the Bible is not a puzzle to be solved like Sherlock Holmes. A mystery in the Bible is unable to be solved by human research or human discovery. A mystery in the Bible is something that is unknowable, completely unknowable by humankind, unless and until God reveals it or discloses it. So it's dependent on revelation. The identification of who Babylon is could not be discovered by human research. God has to be revealed to us, and which is what he's doing here. God says this mystery, this Babylon the Great, is the mother of harlots. What it says is that every false world religion that's in effect today had its genesis back in Babel, Genesis 10. That's the origin, the mother root, if you will, of all false religions. So this harlot breeds harlots. Satan takes the key components of idolatry in Babylon, and then when God spreads the nations, they take them with them. And we'll, you, we could spend lots of time going through world religions, but it's imperative we understand the true so we can understand the false. It says she's full of abominations. In Scripture, abomination generally refers to idol worship. It is anything, an abomination is anything that when you bring it before God will produce his wrath. Anything brought before God that produces his wrath is an abomination. I would recommend you don't make a habit of bringing abominations before the Lord. Just saying. Okay? He's holy, which means he cannot stand and should not stand unholiness. The only reason we can come before him is because the blood of Jesus and because he sees us as having Christ's righteousness, which was imputed to us, which was given to us the moment of salvation. So we have the righteousness of Christ. The world does not. So what they bring before the Lord is abomination. God can't stand it. It says the abominations of the earth, the spiritual adultery, this false religion has influenced the entire earth. Every world religion... Every world religion that denies that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh to redeem mankind from their sin springs from this harlot Babylon. Every world religion that denies that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh to save mankind from their sin. Well, that would be everything but Christianity. And you say, wow, that's pretty exclusive. Yes, it is. Truth is exclusive. What did Jesus Christ say about himself? I am the way, the truth, the life, not a way, not a truth, not the exclusive, singular. Verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered greatly. Here's the principle. All man-centered religions are at war with Jesus Christ and those who follow Jesus. You wonder why in the world you're going to have tribulation? Those of you who are in the 8 o'clock service, we saw the genesis of the persecution of Jesus Christ by the religious leaders. Let me tell you, when Jesus said, I am the way, Satan hates that. He wants to be the way. Everybody who follows Satan hates everyone who follows Jesus. That's life. It's warfare down here until he comes. Satan's world religion has always persecuted God's people and will continue to do so until the end, right? So there's not going to be peace on this planet until the king of glory comes back and repossesses his planet, which is what the book of the Revelation is all about. From the Garden of Eden on, Satan has murdered God's people and those who follow Jesus. Wherever Christ is preached, persecution is going to follow. So if you're encountering opposition to the gospel, you're in good company. Your master, Jesus Christ, encountered opposition from John 4 on, as you found out this morning. 
right? It says that John wondered greatly. The Greek there is mega. Mega means obviously massive. Megathalma, great amazement, awestruck astonishment. He was literally blown away. That would be the vernacular at that point in time. It doesn't tell us why he was blown away, but he might be astonished because this world religion is purporting to represent God while it is actually serving Satan. You know some churches who claim to represent Christ, in fact, they represent Satan. They don't say that, but when you look at how they live and what their theology is, it's absolutely true. So John is astonished. John is mystified. He doesn't understand. The angel's now going to interpret what he has seen. Verse 7. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Verse 8. The beast which you saw, underline this, was, and underline this, is not. And underline this, is about to come. And come up out of the abyss, and underline this, go to destruction. Four things. These four, these two verses have probably engendered more controversial commentary than anything else in Revelation. It is astonishing how much interpretation comes out of these four phrases. Was, is not, about to come up out of the abyss, go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder, whose name has been not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast, that he was, and is not, and will come. Okay. Let's, do, let's unpack this. The beast carries the woman. For now. We're going to find out in a few verses the beast is going to consume this woman. But the beast that you saw was. Was. Underline that. The beast is the person of the Antichrist that's been already revealed to us in Revelation 7 and Daniel 7. Right? We know the beast, the Antichrist, comes to power beginning in Revelation 6. He conquers in Revelation 6, but without warfare. He's a peacemaking conqueror via religion. That's how he conquers the first half of the tribulation. There's not warfare until the second seal judgment. So the beast is Revelation 7 and Daniel, or Revelation 13 and Daniel 7. The beast that was is not. Remember a couple of months ago we said what? Scripture told us very clearly in Revelation 13 that at the halfway point of the tribulation, the Antichrist will what? Suffer a mortal wound. Apparently die. Now there's a lot of commentators that say, well, he really didn't die. It was a fake death. Other very serious ones will say, no, he actually did die. And God gave Satan the ability to resurrect him. But at any rate, that mortal wound and that miraculous resurrection is the reason the world wonders after, is amazed after, and worships him. Understand that the first half of the tribulation, you have an antichrist who's ruling, but at the midpoint of the tribulation, he suffers a mortal wound, and Zechariah 11 tells us he's going to be miraculously resurrected or resuscitated, and that resurrection is the reason the world says, this must be God. Only God can be resurrected. And you say, well, Brad, how come the world dismisses the resurrection of Jesus Christ and accepts the resurrection of the Antichrist? It's real simple. When G you come to Jesus, Jesus said, I'm going to cleanse you from your sin." Guess what? The world likes their sin. When you follow the Antichrist, you can sin without guilt. Of course, they're going to accept his resurrection. He gives them the ability to do what they want to do as long as they worship him. So the whole earth is amazed and is going to worship this beast as God. And that occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation. It says, number three, he was, is not about to come up out of the abyss, the bottomless pit. The abyss there, the abusos, is the prison house of demons, Revelation 13, 3, for those of you who want to cross-check that. The abusos is the prison house of demons. It apparently indicates that this Antichrist does die, goes to the bottomless pit, the prison house of demons, and upon resurrection is now demon-possessed. When you study the chronology of the Antichrist, you understand that you're dealing with a completely different animal before the midpoint of the resurrection 
and after the midpoint of the resurrection. At the midpoint of the resurrection, when, when the Antichrist is resurrected, he does a couple things. Number one, he overcomes the God's two witnesses. He kills them, right? They lay in, in Jerusalem for three and a half days, three days. God says, come up here. They come up here. Up until that point, he was unable to overcome those two witnesses. Until he gets resurrected, he doesn't have the power to do that. Number two, at the midpoint of the, of, the, of the tribulation period, after his resurrection, he puts an image of himself in the Holy of Holies, in the Jewish temple, and does what? Demands to be worshipped as God himself under penalty of death. Midpoint of the tribulation, that occurs. You're dealing with a different animal at this point in time, post his resurrection, post halfway through. The Bible says he came up out of the abyss. Very, very likely that he was demon-possessed when he was raised from the dead and overcomes God to witnesses. So now he has supernatural demonic power and the earth worships him as God because he demands it under penalty of death. So also at the midpoint of the tribulation, he goes to war with Israel. Remember what Daniel told us? He breaks his covenant with Israel at the midpoint of the tribulation. So three and a half years, the first half of the tribulation is a very different experience than the second half. It's all tribulation, but the great tribulation shows up in the second half. Now we have an Antichrist who demands to be worshipped as God. The ultimate destination of this character is what? He's going to go to where? Destruction. Revelation 19 tells us that he is the very first occupant of the lake of fire. Right? He and the false prophet. Daniel 11 as well. It says... Anyone who's not been written in the, land, in the book of life, anyone who does not belong to God, anyone who does not name the name of Jesus Christ will what? Be deceived by the Antichrist's recovery from his deadly wound. You look and you say, how does the world buy the resurrection of the Antichrist? How, how would they believe this? It's real simple. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They have no divine discernment. They have no divine empowerment to illuminate the truth. Of course they're deceived. Anyone without the Holy Spirit is deceived. Yes? You have no capacity to resist Satan's lies. When do you receive the Holy Spirit? At the moment of salvation. All of you have a permanent resident, the third member of the Trinity. You have no excuse to be deceived. Neither do I. We have help. Right? If any man lack wisdom, ask of God. It's available. We just have to remember to ask. So the, the ultimate destination of this Antichrist, this beast, is to obviously go to the lake of fire. Now verse 9 says, here is the mind which has wisdom. You're going to need wisdom here. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are five, seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Now, it says, in order to understand the identification of the beast, you're going to need wisdom. So the angel's going to explain this to you, Holy Spirit through the angel. The seven heads of this beast are what? Seven mountains or hills, right? Many, many people believe that they're talking about the seven-hilled city of Rome. Rome sits on seven hills. That was known back then. It was known now. Others say, well, that doesn't require much wisdom. I mean, they had it under coinage, for heaven's sake, seven hills of Rome. Some interpret this to mean the Roman Catholic Church. Understand, it may include the Roman Catholic Church. It may include the city of Babylon, but it's not limited to any one religion. It is a worldwide system of false religion. It is all false religion. It is all false religions. Verse 10 says that these mountains don't mean literal mountains. They mean kings. They mean kingdoms. So this false religion is going to corrupt all human kingdoms. And it says there are seven of them in total, but five of them have already fallen. Now, in order to understand that, if you go back, just make a note. We're not going to go back there, but go back to Daniel 2. Daniel 2. The image that Daniel had received, the vision, the great image he saw had four component parts. Babylon, what was number two? Persia, number three, Greece, number four, Rome. So we had four kingdoms listed by that image and two world empires prior to that, Egypt and Assyria. When John spoke these words, the first five empires had fallen. Babylon was gone, Persia was gone, Greece was gone, Egypt was gone, Assyria was gone. Rome was still in power, right? 
Rome was still in power. So he said, five have fallen, one is. Rome had not yet fallen. These six kingdoms, these six empires, universally opposed God's people, God's program, and God in person. All six of these. Now you look and you say, Brad, there's a lot more empires in the world than these six. That's correct. These six have significance because they all had a relationship with the nation of Israel. All six of these had a relationship with the nation of Israel. All of them opposed the nation of Israel. All of them persecuted the nation of Israel. And they represent the six heads on this beast that supports the harlot. All of them are history except Rome. One is. What's it say next? The other, the next kingdom, has not yet come. The next kingdom that has not yet come is the future world empire of the Antichrist. So what John, what the angel is saying is, there's seven world empires, five of them are history. All of them oppose God. All of them were daughters of Babylon. They were all false religions. Rome is, it's also a daughter of Babylon. It's a false religion. One's yet to come, the rule of the Antichrist, that's a false religion, that's a daughter of Babylon, right? And one is going to remain a little while. How long did Antichrist rule the world for? Seven years max, right? How long tribulation lasts? Seven years. A little while. A little while. One of the things to remember, folks, I know some of our lives are a mess. We have loved ones that are a mess. We live in a world that is a mess. Remember. It only lasts a little while. All of you in the room at max have a few decades. Max! What do you get? Eight, nine? Maybe ten? You won't even like the last one. You'll be in diapers the last decade or whatever it happens to be. So, you know, it, it, it's a little while. It's just a little while. Some of you are in diapers now. Yes, I understand. I, I get it, you know. I understand. So it, God gives us a little perspective here that says, yes, this character is going to rule the world, but it's just for a little while. It's very temporal, very temporal. I know when you're in diapers, it feels not temporal. I understand. I'm not wearing them yet, but if I live long enough, <laughs> if I live long enough, I probably will. And so will you, right? You drool when you sleep too. I know, I know. Verse 11. Yeah, won't be long, won't be long. Verse 11, And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth, and he is one of the seven, he goes to destruction. Briefly, the seventh kingdom is the coming kingdom of the Antichrist. The Antichrist, when he dies and gets resurrected, he's going to come back to life at the midpoint. He's going to set up an image of himself. He demands to be worshipped. Now we have an eighth kingdom. So the Antichrist both rules the seventh and the eighth. But now he's demon-possessed and he has supernatural abilities. Verse 12, and the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings for the beast for one hour. So what God is saying is during the reign of the Antichrist, there's going to be ten sub-rulers who will assist him. It's been suggested that since Daniel's image had ten toes, perhaps the Antichrist will divide the world into ten political zones and delegate authority to these ten kings to rule on his behalf. These kings have one purpose in verse 13. They give their power to the beast. They're loyal to the Antichrist. He is their God and they obey him. Verse 14 says, These kings, the Antichrist, are going to wage war against who? The Lamb. Here's what you need to underline. The Lamb will overcome them because he is what? Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him, that's, that's those who are with the lamb coming back, that's us, are the called and the chosen and the faithful. Here's the principle. Whatever your problem, God will overcome it because he is the Lord of all. We need to remember in the middle of our struggles, in the middle of our uncertainties, in the middle of our suffering, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, Lord of our suffering, Lord of our relatives, Lord of our boss, Lord of our finances, Lord of our health, Lord of our pain, Lord of our children, Lord of our grandchildren, Lord of circumstances that we cannot control, Lord of the political process that we really can't control. 
Folks, there's very few things in life that are worth getting your blood pressure up about. Jesus Christ says, I am the same yesterday and today forever. I am supreme. I am the lamb and I will overcome everything and you are my children. Is there any problem you have that is greater than God? None. We must remember that perspective. The lamb is Lord of lords. He is alone is supreme. No one is higher. No one is stronger. Verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues and the ten horns which you saw on the beast. These will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and will make it and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now that's pretty graphic language. So there's an alliance between the religious and political system under Satan. Church and state have always worked together to control each other for personal gain. The first half of the tribulation, the Antichrist is only the political leader. The false prophet is the spiritual leader, the religious leader. Midway through the tribulation, the Antichrist, after he recovers from his deadly wound, he says, you're going to worship me alone. You know what that means? I don't need any competition. I'm not going to tolerate any religious competition. Any religion anywhere in the world that worships anything or anyone besides me, I'm going to destroy. That means... The Antichrist will destroy, attempt to destroy, not just Christianity and Judaism. He's going to destroy Islam. He's going to destroy Hinduism. He's going to destroy Taoism, Buddhism, New Age, Humanism, Animism, Spiritism. Every world religion will be destroyed, except for the worship of Moi, the Antichrist. And he will do it at the point of a sword. You worship me under penalty of death. Yes? We know that's coming. So he is going to destroy every world religion and confiscate all their property. The world religions possess some very interesting properties. Gold, silver, artifacts. Yeah, I think so. I think so, enormously. So he wants to be worshipped as God, but God has another plan, verse 17. You need to circle verse 17. It's one of the most profound statements regarding the sovereignty of God. For God has put in their hearts, whose hearts? These ten kings, to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdoms to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. Here's the principle. Men fulfill God's will even when they oppose his will. That came from Henry Morris. I added the words, to their own hurt. Men fulfill God's will even when they oppose his will to their own hurt, which means there are people that oppose God's will to their own hurt, their own free choice to oppose God. They bear the penalty of that, and God will use their opposition to accomplish his purpose. Satan wants to be God. Is that going to work? Never. We talked last week that God is not the author of evil. God opposes evil, and yet God will use evil for his holy purposes. And we look and we say, no comprende. I do not understand. You're right. Our three-pound brains will not understand the mind of God fully. We won't. But this statement says that these ten kings freely, willfully chose to worship the Antichrist, chose to surrender their sovereignty to him, chose to surrender their kingdoms to him. They chose to go to war with the Lamb, and God is going to use their free choice to do what? Destroy every false religion on planet Earth. Except the worship of Antichrist, and he will deal with Antichrist at his second coming. You know Romans 8.28, correct? God causes... It's very important that you understand all things because some stuff in our life right now, I'm, I think some of you are not quite sure that all things means all things. It may mean some things. It may mean everything but. God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't say work together for my comfort. It doesn't say work together for my euphoria. It doesn't say work together for my health. It doesn't say work together for my health. It says work together for good. That's eternal good as well as temporal good. What's the qualifier? 
To those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. If you know Jesus Christ, you are called according to his purpose. You must understand that he never does anything that is not for your long-term benefit. Your long-term benefit may involve short-term pain. And you say, Brad, you could have left that part out right there. You're absolutely right. Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him, did what? Endured the cross, right? For the long-term benefit of those of us who follow. So it's imperative that you understand that even though people oppose God, Satan opposes God, the world opposes God, God's will will never be thwarted. Never. His plan will always come to fruition in perfect time. And our call is to surrender our troubles, our problems, our pains, our sufferings, our anger with God to him, understanding that everything he does, he does for his glory and our good. Amen? Okay, let's review. Here's the key idea. Idolatry begins with I and ends with try. It's all about self. True worship begins and ends with God alone, which means you bring your issues to him and you worship him and you lay them down. Number two, loving anything more than Jesus is committing spiritual adultery against your first love. This is a matter of the heart. You have to go before the Lord and say, do I have anything in my life that I value more than you? By the way, when you say, I surrender all, you know, we sit there and sing that at the invitation time. The Holy Spirit has told me, I can't tell how many times. Really, Brad Hannick? All? Yeah. And three years ago, he said, your son. All. All. I surrender all. Everything is on the list. Amen. Three, all man-centered religions are at war with Jesus and those who follow Jesus. If you're getting opposition, rejoice to the extent you're following the Lord. That's what counts. Whatever your problem, God will overcome it because he is Lord of all. Lastly, men fulfill God's will even when they oppose his will to their hurt. The plan of God will never be thwarted. Tom, are you here? For uh, prayer requests here, we have family time where we come before the Lord and each other and bring our issues and lay them down before the King. Okay, I love you. Now that you know the truth, go and do.